Well, as the screen says, he's risen. He's risen indeed. What a great day to, to celebrate that. Turn with me to Luke 24 as we get started this morning. Nate read this for us this morning. But I want you to imagine what it would feel like in Jerusalem that day to have uh, the leader that you had followed for the previous three years and to hear the news that you had heard, to, to hear that he had been crucified, to hear that he had been buried, and then to hear that uh, some of the women and Peter had gone to the tomb and found the tomb empty and not knowing exactly what was going on. And that's what faced these two men on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus was a, a village about seven miles from Jerusalem, so they're on their way home from the weekend's events trying to put these things together, and they get a visitor on their walk home, a stranger, at least to them at the time. And, and we see that this stranger began to ask them questions, and, and, and they, he, he says this in verse um, 17. He said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And you get an insight into their emotional state at the time. These two men were, were sad. They were sad to, to know that this man that they had followed, this Jesus of Nazareth, that there was some confusion as to what was going on uh, with him. And so uh, Jesus, who was a stranger, was uh, disguised to them, and, and he began to explain. And we get all the way down to verse 27, and it says that Jesus began at Moses and all the prophets. That's just a, a way to say the Old Testament. He went through the entire Old Testament, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, and he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they went all the way home, and notice what happens in verse 30. It came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And I love what they say next. See, they recognize Jesus when he prays. And notice what they say next. As Jesus had journeyed them through the Old Testament, pointing out how the scriptures testified to him. In verse 32, they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And how excited were they that day? Verse 33, they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, that's a subtle comment in the text, but that's seven miles walking. Not in the Honda Accord, right? Not in a, not in a Toyota Camry. Not on a, a motorbike. Anything like that. Seven miles. They had just walked seven miles. Their heart burned so much, they said, we got to go back and tell people about this message. And, you know, I think what's interesting about this is in verse 27, again, going back to that, that Jesus began at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is God is, is consistent from beginning to end. This is why Jesus could go to the Old Testament and preach himself from the Old Testament. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. We see that God has had one story from beginning to end. God has one story that he's trying to communicate with you and with me. He's not trying to hide the way to heaven from us. He's not trying to make it difficult. He's not trying to make it hard. You don't have to learn a secret handshake. You don't have to go down a secret alley. You don't have to go through a back door. He's, he's communicating it clearly, and it's been one story consistently over time with no deviation, no change. 
Man has been saved by grace through faith in the finished work, the substitutionary atoning death of a promised deliverer. That's the message of the Bible from start to finish. That's how Abraham got saved. That's how Adam got saved. And you know what? That's how you and I get saved today. He goes through great effort, we see God, to repeat, to restate, to remind mankind throughout history of this one way. And we see that testimony in the Old Testament. He's repeating, reminding, restating of this one way. And he does it over and over and over again. How many times does it take your children to learn something once you've told them? Well, they're probably like my children. They learn the first time, right? You just tell them one time and they get it. Now, my children are more like two times, right? No, try seven, eight. Some were still waiting for that final number to drop. I don't know when it's going to sink in. But, you know, God is very careful in the message that he communicates, and he does it over and over and over again, and God is consistent. You know, God is consistent in a way that you and I are not consistent. You don't believe me? How's your New Year's resolution going? That's just four and a half months ago. We can't even be consistent for four and a half months. Some of us, it didn't take four and a half hours. You know, we, we, got, we had that leftover pie there on New Year's. We're like, ah, oh, forget this diet thing. That's for the birds. We'll do that next year. And so you see this consistency in God. You know, how hard is it to be consistent? Well, for God, it's not hard to be consistent. There's no contingencies in his plan. He, he put it all together from beginning to end, and he stuck to his plan. You know, the other thing that's great is this one way that God speaks about over and over again. It's not subject to somebody else's opinion. You know, he's not subject to the latest fads. He's, it's not going to be replaced. It's not going to be repealed. Uh, it's not going to be revised. It's not going to be refurbished. It's not going to be tweaked up to, to meet the common culture of the day. God's one way is not subject to change. He's put it together perfectly from the beginning. It needs no revision. It's not like a medical care system. It's not like a governmental system. It's not like any of those things that always get repealed, replaced, revised, refurbished, fixed and corrected and then messed up and then fixed and corrected. It's not like that at all. God has been consistent from the beginning. This one way does not need any change. And you know, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we'll look at today, God has gone through great lengths also to prove to you that his one way is infallible. That his one way actually takes care of the sin problem that you and I both have. All of us have this issue and God's one way deals with it so perfectly. And the resurrection is the testimony to that. Now, to base it all down, to to kind of base it down to some fundamental things, God really gave us some consistent themes in the Old Testament. And this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. First, the penalty for sin is death. If, if we don't get that out of the Old Testament, if we don't get that out of the Bible, we're missing, we're missing the boat. The penalty for sin is death. This never changes. God is consistent on this front. Why? Because God is completely holy and completely just, and he will never cease to be completely holy and completely just. So in terms of consistently executing justice on lawbreakers, God is consistent with this. You never have to wonder where God is on certain issues. You know, I remember as a kid growing up, and my dad's here today, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but my dad believed in corporal punishment. 
Not capital punishment, because I'm still here, but if he did believe in that, I wouldn't be here this morning, I guarantee. But he believed in corporal punishment. And I remember sometimes as a kid going home and not knowing if my mom had told my dad yet what I had done at school that day, and not knowing if it was safe to go near him or to avoid him, because he may have not got into the knowledge yet. And so some days I'd walk by and, and I didn't get swatted. My mom kept it from him for some reason, and I, and I obtained mercy, and I didn't get any corporal punishment. But some days he knew what had happened, and, and I remember those days well. Those days stick out to me a little bit more than the others. But you know, amen, yeah, thanks. Um, but you know, God never misses a bit of information. See, see God never changes. God is consistent because he is holy, and he's always holy. That's who he is. He is just. He's always just. That's who he is. And so God remains consistent in that the penalty for sin is death. Here's another consistent thing that we see. Thank you, man. God wants to provide a solution for this penalty. See, that's, that's the beautiful thing of God because not only is God holy and just, but he's also love. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament is although there is a penalty for sin, God wants to provide the solution for that penalty. He doesn't want you to provide the solution. He doesn't expect you to provide the solution. He wants to provide it for you. And he's done that from the beginning of time. This never changes because God is love. God wants to provide this solution. He doesn't want to see anybody destroyed by his justice. And these are the two truths that run simultaneously throughout the Bible. This was probably some of the things that Jesus was communicating to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. These two truths running parallel with one another through the scriptures. So how does God do this? How does God put this penalty that that cannot be changed with his solution that he wants to provide for those who have broken his law? Well, we go on to see that the consistency of God, that he promised a solution to sin's problem by sending or promising a coming deliverer. One day, this coming deliverer, promised all the way back into Genesis 3, was going to take care of the solution for sin and its consequences. God promised that all throughout the beginning, and he spends the rest of the Bible testifying and witnessing of what this coming deliverer would do for you and for me. This coming deliverer, we see, would defeat Satan. He would crush the serpent's head, and he would provide God's solution for man's problem. We, he would be God's loving solution. This, this person would be God's loving solution. But notice again, God wants to provide it for man. He's not expecting man to engineer a solution on his own. And so the entire Old Testament provides this testimony. And the entire Old Testament provides these visual aids of what this coming deliverer would do. This, it doesn't, the Old Testament doesn't have to be a confusing book when we see it in light of God's story. What is God doing? He's revealing what this coming deliverer would do. He's providing visual aids all throughout the Bible to show what he would accomplish on our behalf and what he would do to take care of sin's problem for good. So what were God's visual aids? Well, simply put, the penalty for sin was death, and so there was a lot of death in the Old Testament. The good news was, is that God had devised a way that a substitute could pay the penalty for a guilty person. An innocent substitute could pay that atoning sacrifice, 
And God began to introduce this concept all the way back in Genesis of a substitutionary atoning death of an animal. See, this would give God the ability, if you will, or he could rightfully execute his justice. He wouldn't have to compromise his justice because somebody was paying the penalty. The good news is that the lawbreaker didn't have to pay that penalty. An animal could pay the penalty in their place. And so we see God introduce this atoning substitutionary death. We also see through this substitutionary atoning death that God in his love could let the lawbreaker go free. Why? Because they had put their faith in God. They had put their faith in God's coming deliverer. And so we see man is saved by grace through faith and that the animal sacrifices pointed ahead to what this final coming promised deliverer would do one day and take care of man's sin problem forever. God illustrated through the death of innocent animals how he would eventually deal with the sin problem via his promised deliverer. You know, and so as God is consistent, we see this over and over and over again throughout the history of the pages of the Bible. We also see that man is consistent. And man has a million dollar two-point question, if you want to say it that way. How can he get rid of his sin with all its consequences? And secondly, how can he gain a righteousness equal to God's righteousness so can be, he can be accepted back into his presence? See, man has got a dilemma. Man, mankind has known this at some level. Now, if they could explain it this way over history, I don't know if they would explain it this exact way. But they knew something was off in their relationship with the Creator. And so man became consistent in how they began to deal with this two-part question. And they got consistent in trying to solve the sin problem on their own. They began what, we would, what we've termed fig leaf sowing parties. And so you see that man is consistent in trying to solve the sin problem on his own. In fact, this is the explanation and the reason for the development of every religion in the world. It's their fig leaf sowing parties. Religion only tells you and engineers and comes up with their own ideas on how to deal with the sin problem. And God doesn't want you dealing with the sin problem. He wants to provide the solution for you. God wants to deal with the sin problem on your behalf. And he wants you simply to trust the way in which he's dealt with sin. Religion approaches it the exact opposite. Let me tell you what I'm going to do to deal with my sin problem. Let me tell you how I'm going to be good enough, how I'm going to light enough candles, how I'm going to get wet enough with water, how I'm going to get sprinkled, immersed. I'm going to go through every ritual known to man to beat this sin problem. And we're missing the whole point of the Bible. That is not the answer to the sin problem. God wants to provide the solution. And God has provided the solution to man's sin problem. He's done that through his promised deliverer. We know him better by the name Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again 2,000 years ago on a day in history when everything that God had planned from the beginning of time was executed by Jesus. Jesus bore the brunt of our justice. So there's no need to have a fig leaf sowing party. There's no need to make an effort to try to come to God and make yourself acceptable to God because you'll never do it. And this is what man has been consistent with through the beginning of history. The long and distinguished history of all the fig leaf sowing parties. Adam and Eve started it by sowing fig leaves together as coverings for them when they sinned in the garden. Cain, with his offering, came to God in his way. His offering did not 
shed blood, but he put a lot of effort into growing the fruit and the produce of ground to bring to God, and yet effort wasn't good enough. God was not looking for Cain to come up with the solution. God wanted to provide it for Cain. We see the people of Noah's day, they didn't even care. (laughs) The text tells us in, in Genesis 6 that their thoughts were only evil all the time. They weren't even thinking about God approaching him or having to face him one day in judgment. The people of Babel said, hey, we'll make a tower that reaches to heaven. We want to get to heaven. We'll just build a tower and we'll get there. And if this God tries to destroy us with a flood again, we'll just go up on top of the tower and protect ourselves from ever being destroyed again. Ha, what do you think about that, God? And they thumbed their nose at God and said, we'll get there our own way. You know, the old Frank Sinatra song, right? I did it my way. Well, they did it their way. And it didn't work out too well for him because God doesn't want us doing things our own way. He wants to provide a solution that only he can provide. And yet we see this history of fig leaf sowing parties. We see the Israelites and their birth privilege. The Israelites began to trust in the fact that they were Jews, the trust in the fact that they were circumcised, the trust in the fact that they had the law. God doesn't want them trusting in themselves. God doesn't want us trusting in ourselves, coming to God in our own way. And so the Israelites, too, needed to look away from themselves. We see the Pharisees, as a history of fig leaf sowing parties go on, they began to develop rules and, 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 and different uh, barriers around the law of God. They began to create a whole new system of more difficulty, and they began to live in good works. We looked at one of those men last week briefly, Nicodemus, who was one of the most religious men in the world who had kept these outer layers of law. If, if the law said, don't touch this, Nicodemus would just stand back here. I mean, he wouldn't even get close to it. And that's how the Pharisees viewed the law of God to not break. And they began to trust in their good works. And God didn't want them to trust in their good works because good works will not save you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's not of good works. It's not of yourselves implying that God needs to provide the solution and he does so in grace. What about us? What about you? What have you implemented that would fall into the category of a fig leaf sowing party that you're conducting in your own place of of thinking and, and worship? What about you? Were your parents Christians? Is that why you think you're going to heaven? Is that enough? What, was your parent a pastor? Do you have pastors in your family? Did your uncle pastor? Your uncle a priest? Your uncle a monk? Is that what gets you? Is that what gets you in heaven? Is that what you're trusting in this morning? What about are you depending on the fact that you try to live the best you know how? Yeah, you don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, but you you're trying. You're, you're making an effort. I mean, you get up early. You pray. You you know, you come to church. I mean, you're, you're in church on Easter Sunday. You come other times of the year. Is that, is that what you're trusting in? See, the problem with that is you're trusting in yourself. God wants to provide a solution for you. And you're, it's like you telling God, no, I got this. No, keep your solution, God. Keep your son and what he did for me. I got this, God. I'll take care of it, God. I've, I've got a, a good sewing machine. I've got good fig leaves. I got this covered. Just leave me alone. You know, and that's what religion does. It, the, the deception of religion, and it's, it makes you feel like you're getting closer to God, and all the while it's causing you and I to depend upon ourselves. 
The very thing that will take us away from God. Many, te- many times that's what religion does to us. See, God wants to provide a solution. Your solution is not found in a church. Your solution is not found in a man. Your solution is not found in all the spiritual disciplines that you engage in. Your solution is, pro- is found in God's solution. It's a, he's a person. His name's Jesus Christ. That's God's solution. And Jesus did something 2,000 years ago, and he executed the solution. He died for your sins so that you don't have to pay the penalty for those. And God raised him from the dead saying, I agree with what Jesus said. When he said, it is finished, God the Father said, amen. It's done. He paid it in full. And so why do we, we want to trust in our own fig leaves. Why would we want to trust in our church membership? I don't even care if you're a member at this church. That doesn't get you into heaven. I don't even care if you come close to this church on Sundays, like in the same zip code. That doesn't get you into heaven. That's not God's solution. God's solution is found in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So what is God's desire for you? It's real simple. You're done. Quit trying to get there on your own and start recognizing that God wants you and I to look away from ourselves for the solution. If you begin to look away from yourself, you're no, you know what you're saying by that? You're saying, I can't help myself. I don't have enough resources to get myself there. I love it when I'm teaching my kids or, or as I watch, sometimes Carrie teaches the kids this, and I can't remember who I taught what and who she taught what, but it starts to all come together. But teaching your kids to tie their shoes, isn't that something? You need a great deal of patience to wait for them to learn, don't you? And, and you got some kids that are just, they're just going to tackle it, and they'll stay there for two hours until they figure that thing out. And then you got some kids that they, they don't, it's like they don't even want to learn. They just flip it over and go, okay, dad, why don't you take care of the rest? You know, I, I can't figure this thing out. You know, and it's this idea that at some point, each one of us needs to come to a place where we say, I can't do this, I need help. Some point, like my, my kids came where I can't put this last loop, I can't figure out this bunny ear, dad, I need your help. I need you to do something for me that I cannot do for myself. And it's the same way in salvation. God desires for you and I to stop looking inward to try to provide a solution. He wants to provide it, and he's done that in Jesus. Looking away from ourselves to God for his solutions called faith. Simply, simply put, that's biblical faith, looking to God to do for something for us that we could not do for ourselves, and he did that in the work of Christ. Faith is trusting in the work of another. See, we look away from ourselves, we're trusting in the work of another when you realize that you cannot do the work yourself, you can't accomplish it yourself. This is giving up on your own version of the fig leaf sewing party trying to provide the solution on your own. You and I will never be good enough. We're not good enough today. We won't be good enough tomorrow, even if we try and stay up 24 hours today, engineering a way to be better. It's time to give up. It's time to bend over. It's time to take a deep breath. And it's time to look to the one who did the work for you that you could not do for yourself and to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like you're resting in a chair this morning, the Bible wants you to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He paid it all. That's what the Bible teaches. And you know that all throughout the Old Testament, men and women were saved 
this same way when they put their faith in the future coming deliverer, the one who would come and completely take care of the sin problem. And today, as we look back 2,000 years ago, we're believing on the same coming deliverer who's already come. We're looking back in the past at a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha. And I want you to think about everything that we've covered in the Old Testament. Because God pointed repeatedly over and over again. If you don't like repetition, then you probably don't like the Old Testament or the Bible in general. Because God has no problem repeating and reminding and restating truth so that we get it. Because for many of us, it takes eight, nine, ten, a hundred, a thousand times before it finally sinks in as to what God is saying. But he repeatedly pointed over and over again to this coming deliverer that he would die a substitutionary atoning death for mankind. He would pay the penalty that God required so that he could set those who believed in him free from that penalty. That's the message of the Bible over and over and over again. In fact, this is what's all the Old Testament examples that we've covered in the past few weeks stated, isn't it? Adam and Eve sinned. They deserved to die for their sin. In fact, that was the announcement that God made that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And so they deserved to die. That was the punishment for their sin. But God executed the death sentence upon an innocent animal in their place, and he clothed them himself. See, God provided the solution for Adam and Eve. Now, we know through history that everyone now born uh, following Adam and Eve were born outside the garden. They were separated from God. They were born into a position of death, of separation in their relationship to God. And so thus we see Cain and Abel. Both of them deserve to die for their sin. And yet God accepted a substitutionary death of an innocent animal in Abel's place. But notice that he did not accept Cain's sacrifice of fruit from the ground. And we, we covered this last week, but who put forth more effort? Cain or Abel? Well, Cain did. You ever planted fruit in the ground? You know, it's not like, it's, I mean, I wish it was like this. I am horrible at planting. I'm not a, I don't have a green thumb to save my life. I wish I could just flick a seed over into a pile of dirt and fruit would grow out of it. I'm horrible at that. I, even when I try to do it the right way, I kill it, right? So, so to put together this sacrifice, Cain put together a lot of work. He planted the seed, he tilled the ground, he, he watered it, he cared for it, he, he kept it. And then he, he made the effort to harvest it. It took time for him to put this together. And so when he brought the sacrifice, he put in a lot more work than Abel, who simply went out to his flock and said, okay, this lamb's got no blemish. Let me take this one. This one's going to die in my place. So it's not about effort. It's about God's solution. See, the reason Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted is because his sacrifice didn't shed blood. His sacrifice didn't meet the penalty of breaking God's law, which was death. And yet the animal did. And so Abel was looking to God's solution by faith. We see the story of Noah. Noah and the ark. He deserved to die for his sin. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God had Noah built an ark. And Noah trusted in God's way of deliverance for him. And he built the ark. There was only one door in that ark. And God sealed it after Noah and his family got in. Abraham too deserved to die for his sin as we just work through the Old Testament stories. But Abraham believed the Lord. 
He was looking forward to the coming promised deliverer, and God credited righteousness to his account. How do we know that? Well, John 8, 56, as Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees, he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. See, Abraham was looking forward to this coming deliverer. As we go on in the Old Testament, we see Abraham's son Isaac deserved to die for his sin. In fact, he was pretty close to dying physically, wasn't he? He was placed up on an altar, strapped into the altar by his own dad. And as, and as his own father came to, to jam the knife down and kill his son, according to God's instruction, God provided a substitute, a ram over there in the bushes. See, Isaac looked to God's provision. Abraham looked for God's solution so he wouldn't have to kill his son. See, God is about providing a solution to man's problem, not man engineering and figuring out their own solution. And then we have a big illustration in the Passover. The firstborn children in Egypt deserve to die for their sin, both Egyptian and Israelite children. Why? Because they're born sinners. And so when you're born a sinner, you commit acts of sin that require this penalty of death to be enacted. That's a never-changing truth in the Bible as we see carried out throughout. And we saw that God would accept the substitutionary death of an innocent lamb in their place. The blood of the lamb was to be passed, uh, or, um, painted onto the doorpost and lintel. And when the angel of God saw the blood there, the, it, the text tells us that he passed over. He just, he just passed over that house. Why? Because death had already fallen there. The penalty had already been paid at that house. It was just paid through the blood of an innocent animal, not the life and the blood of the innocent firstborn or the guilty firstborn. And so we see this beautiful picture. But remember the details? There was some details in this Passover. And, and Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to call Jesus our Passover lamb. He's the one that makes this connection. But notice these details that were fulfilled, these parallels that were fulfilled in the Passover lamb. Remember that the Passover lamb could have no defect? Well, the, Bible's tell, the Bible tells us that Jesus was sinless. He had no defect. We know that the Passover lamb had to be a male, and Jesus was a man. We know that the lamb had to die in the place of the firstborn. Jesus died in our place, the Bible tells us. We know that the lamb's bones were not to be broken. Jesus' bones were not broken. In fact, they wanted to break his bones. Remember the story? They wanted to get these bodies off of the cross. The, the Jewish leaders went to the Roman authorities and said, we need to get these bodies off the cross because we're getting ready to enter into our Sabbath time. And they said, okay, well, one way we can speed up death is we can, we can break their legs. Because if you remember the, the, the torture device that the Romans used in crucifixion, they would, they would nail their, their victims to a cross um, nail their arms here, nail their feet there, and they would put them in such a way that the only way they could breathe is to push themselves up on the nails to take a breath, and then they would let themselves back down. And imagine if every breath you had to take this morning, you've probably breathed, I don't know how many times since you've been, since the sermon started, but imagine if every breath you took, you had to push up in excruciating pain on nails through your wrist and through your feet. And that's what they did in crucifixion. And eventually the victim would die uh, choking on their own blood, uh, asphyxiation. And so to break their legs would, would render them incapable of, of lifting themselves up to breathe, and they would just die right there, choking on their own blood in asphyxiation. And yet as the soldiers came to Jesus to break his legs, they said, oh, he's already dead. I said, well, let's test it. Let's jam a spear in his side 
and blood and water came out, they said, yep, he's dead. And so his bones were saved from being broken. A picture, perfect example of the Passover lamb. And so wherever the death angel saw the blood applied, he would pass over that house. And now God provided a way for his judgment to pass over us. See, God wants to execute justice. He's got to execute justice. But he has devised a way that he has executed justice on his son so that you and I don't have to face it. See, God doesn't want to execute justice on you. He doesn't want to send you to hell. He's devised a way that he can pass over judgment on you. Whoever puts their faith in Jesus, God's judgment will pass over them. And that's why when we see the beautiful picture of Jesus and this Passover lamb, we also know from history that Jesus died on the very day the Passover lamb was sacrificed in the temple. And not only, not only did he die at the very same day, but he died at the very hour that the temple lamb was offered in the temple. See, God gave us a great visual aid. That's why when John says uh, at the beginning, as he records the words of John the Baptist, he said this about Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you think God is consistent in his message? Do you think God is trying to convince us of his plan and his one way, this solution that he wants to provide for you? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You know, going on into the Old Testament, every Israelite deserved to die for their sin, especially after the introduction of the Mosaic Law, which just gave us a clear Example and a clear standard to show us that we don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. All you have to do is spend a couple minutes with the law of God. All you have to do is spend a couple minutes with four of the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 609. Ever told a lie? That's you're a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. You're a liar. So am I. I'm not, I mean. I was pointing at you. I got four coming back at me. I, I mean, I get that. I, this is an accusatory. It's just to say this is the truth of what we're up against. You ever stolen anything? Ah, you're, you're a thief. So am I. Jesus says if you've ever looked at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery. If you've ever been angry with somebody. John goes on to say if you've ever hated somebody, you're a murderer. Did you know you're guilty of murder if you're angry or hated somebody? That's God's standard. See, nobody measures up. We all deserve to die. And so the Israelites saw this even more clearly. And so the temple and the tabernacle system showed them this visual aid that their coming deliverer would one day die a substitutionary atoning death. As they saw hundreds, thousands, even millions of lambs in the Old Testament who died as a substitute for millions of guilty lawbreakers throughout the Old Testament. And then we come to the final lamb. Jesus says in, in John 19, 30, these are his last words from the cross. Very last thing he says. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This word uh, translated a phrase, it is finished, um, translates one word in the Greek. Uh, you'll hear it said a couple of different ways. I'll, I'll probably say it wrong. But anyways, it's tetelestai or tetelestai, just depending on who you ask. But it's this Greek word, tetelestai, 
And, and I just want to bring out some significance to this word because there were three uses of this word that I think were extremely significant in the fact that Jesus shouted this. You know, many people would look at that phrase and say, it is finished as, as kind of a whimper. Like, ah, he's, ah it's finished. I, I guess I didn't make it. And I guess I didn't get off. But I think you're going to see as we look at these meanings that I think it was more of a victory cry. I think he knew what he was saying. And I think he, he knew uh, the manner in which he was saying it. You know, the Greek word tetelestai was used uh, in Jesus' day by a servant who would report to his or her master upon completing a task. The job that you gave me is finished. Job done. Job well done. And they would come up to their master and say, tetelestai, the job you gave me is completed. Second meaning I think that's significant is it was an accounting term used in the day. In fact, uh, what it would do is signify the completion of a transaction when a debt was paid in full. In fact, they had, uh, they had debt in that day or, 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 or mortgage payments or whatever you want to say, and they would have this word, tetelestai, written across their statement of debt, basically saying this loan, this debt had been paid in full. And so we would see that word recorded uh, at this time in history. And then I think the, the third one is, is significant as well. Tetelestai was used um, in the selection of a lamb for sacrifice in the temple. The flock would be searched, and upon finding an unblemished lamb, one would say tetelestai. The job was finished. The sacrificial lamb had been found. So they'd be out, in the, out uh, you know, walking amongst the flock, and when somebody finally found a lamb that was unblemished, they'd, they'd yell, tetelestai, I got the lamb. Not the lamb that's going to work for the sacrifice. And so, a quick summary. Jesus literally shouted, the work you gave me is completed. The debt is paid. Sacrificial lamb is found. This is what he yells as his, as his victory cry. But how do we know that God agreed with him? How do we know God the Father agreed with this victory cry? Well, God gave his stamp of approval on what Jesus did, and he did it by raising Jesus from the dead. That's what we celebrate today. This is God's stamp of approval, what history bore out, what the Old Testament scriptures bore out, that God was going to send a promised deliverer who was going to finally take care of the sin problem, and by golly, he did. And by golly, and by God's grace, Jesus Christ did it all. He paid it all. He completed the work that God had sent him to do. He was the sacrificial lamb. And God approved of his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. Jesus said, it is finished. And God the Father said, amen. You're right, son. It is finished. You did it all. This was proof that God's promise to live or set out and accomplish what God had promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Through Jesus Christ, God has provided the only permanent solution to man's sin problem. And so it begs the question, will you trust in God's solution? Or or do you have your arm up saying, no, God, I got this. Yeah, I I got this. No, I can can light a few more candles. I can go to church a few more times. No, God, I think I got this covered. I, I don't need you. Go help somebody else that's a lot worse off than me. Or do you believe that God alone has a solution? And that God has provided the solution in Jesus Christ. And that he's convinced you, sought to convince you 
that his solution is all he will accept by raising his son from the dead. Do you believe that this morning? See, it's, it's your move, as this picture says. Jesus has paid it all. God has, has accepted his payment on, it, on your behalf. And now the question is, what will you do with that information? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you? Do you believe that God's solution is the only solution you need? Are you you're going to continue to hedge your bets? You're going to continue to, to balance your eternal destiny, one foot on Jesus, a little bit of weight, maybe more weight on him, and maybe 10% weight on my good works. God wants you depending solely on his solution. That's where he's looking to. He wants you to look the same place. Now, there might be someone here this morning who, for the first time, understood that message. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've heard it a million times. Maybe you've heard it a few times. But maybe it made sense this morning, and you this morning want to put your faith in Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing about that is, because Christ has done it all, there's nothing left for you to do in terms of response other than believe God. Take him at his word and trust in Christ. You don't have to walk up here. You don't have to shake my hand. My hand's probably dirty. I was, you know, I've got five kids. I, I don't know if I win the last time I washed them. You don't want to shake my hand. That's not going to get you anywhere. You don't have to, there's no altars up here. There's no benches up here. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to do push-ups in the back. You don't have to do jumping jacks. You don't have to pray a prayer. You can simply, in the quietness of your heart, Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again and that that's God's solution for your sin problem? The Bible says if you believe that, you have eternal life and you'll never face the penalty of death. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we lift up and exalt Jesus Christ. That's the reason we meet on Sunday. We actually believe this message that he's our only solution and he's our only way to heaven and if you believe that for the first time this morning, I would just ask you to do me one favor. Would you tell me about it when you leave today? Would you just let me know? I would rejoice with you, along with the angels in heaven, as the scriptures tell us, are rejoicing. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then I'll have Ross come up, and we'll observe communion. Lord, we do thank you for um, your word. We thank you for What Jesus did, we thank you for the way that you told us and consistently pointed to what he would do for us to solve our sin problem. We're thankful, Lord, that you don't leave it to us, that we don't have to perform a certain way or engineer a solution, that you were the the great R&D department, you were the great engineer, you developed a solution that was foolproof and fail-proof, and so we're grateful to simply trust in what you did by sending Jesus to die for our sins and rise again. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we leave here today, as as believers, that we would never lose sight of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that would be uh, an event that's just stamped into our thinking that we can't help but rejoice in and think about every moment of every day that we take a breath here on, on this earth. And so we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.